This is episode 112 of Reconcile the Isle. What on earth is going on? Rocket Man. Puerto Rico. Russia, 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 Russia. Eight accusers. Several allegations. Thousands of cases. Charlottesville. Horrific shooting. Deadly school shooting. The third deadly mass shooting in a week. Category four. California wildfires. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. Government shutdown. I've never seen this country divided like this. This is astounding to me. Reconcile the Isle. Welcome to Reconcile the Isle, where my characters and I are figuring out how we can have meaningful dialogue about difficult topics. My name is Lauren Lejudice. Today, we're going to add something to our format. We have an interview, of course, and we have Melania Trump chiming in from her quarantine. And now we're going to have a new segment called Stupid People. So last episode was an interview with my dad, Charles Lejudice Jr. He detailed all the ways that we should punish the people who don't do social distancing. The response was super positive. Texts and tweets, uh, you know, people really, really enjoyed this. And this was people from all different walks of life and political persuasions. And I think the reason why is because no matter who you are, you hate stupid people. We are united in our hatred for people who are dumb and callous. And so we're going to keep this segment. So here we go with this week's stupid person. As you know, the whole world is in a pandemic with this uh, COVID-19. We're in in this uh, virus situation. The whole country, the United States, is in in quarantine almost. If, If you look at the highways, there's like three vehicles and two Amish fucking horse and wagons on the road. All right. So there's like you could go from here to California. You you could speed at 100 miles an hour and get there really fast if you wanted to. But there's nobody on the roads. And what are they doing? They're not paving them. They're going to fucking pave the roads when the pandemic is over and it's rush hour, like on the FDR, the BQE. These are all uh, terrible roadways that are like driving through the Baja, even though they're in cities. And they're paved, okay? You need a Hummer, you know, or an, uh, uh, that, that they use in, in, the, in, in the service, the military, so that you don't break your suspension and get a flat tire with all the potholes and everything. You know, it's like uh, the world-famous cyclone. That's less of a thrill than driving on some of the roads in New York City, you know? So I think at this time, they should be uh, paving the roads and not, uh, you know, just keeping everybody home. because. Um, you know, I, I understand that the hospital workers and people, truck drivers and cashiers and the retail workers, the people working in stores and restaurants, those are essential. You know what I mean? You know, but let's fix the roads now so that when everybody can get back to work, they can get to work. So their half hour ride doesn't take three hours. Okay. So on th- that's like, um, that's a four on the rectum scale. Okay. For the politicians. Yes. Yeah, don't want to do that. Yeah, so we okay. have at five scale, we just started a scale. Out of five, five stars, some people do, we do five rectums. So right. the assholeness, this is a four out of five right. rectum behavior. Uh, uh, yeah, but not paving the roads now. Okay. All right, thanks, Dad. Problem happens when we take the frustration we have with humanity and start to pin it on particular groups. And we're going to talk about how white supremacists are doing just that. We're welcoming today's special guest, Sammy Rangel of Life After Hate. This is part two of our discussion. Part one is in episode 109. Sammy Rangel is an author, social worker, and peace activist, speaker, trainer, father. His autobiography, Forebears, The Myths of Forgiveness, chronicles his life from the physical and sexual abuse he endured as a child to his path of self-destruction that culminated in a 15-and-a-half-year prison sentence. In 2012, Sammy founded Formers Anonymous, a national self-help group based on the 12-step model for people addicted to street life and violence. In May 2015, he participated in the TEDx Danubia Conference, Balance on the Edge, held in Budapest, where he spoke about the power of forgiveness. In 2017, he was honored in a special tribute to everyday heroes in the global campaign against violent extremism. Sammy holds a Master of Social Work from Loyola University, Chicago. He previously served as director for a youth outreach program in his hometown of Racine for 16 years. 
He is also a second-degree black belt, practices mixed martial arts, and is a singer on a Native American drum. He is a co-founder and executive director of the organization Life After Hate, which is committed to helping people leave the violent far right to connect with humanity and live compassionate lives. If you've wondered who are these white supremacists that you keep hearing about, and what do they look like and sound like, and what are their plans for the future, and how do they operate, well, this is definitely the episode for you. Stay around until the end to hear about this episode's giveaway, and you can always sign up at laurenlogie.com slash podcast to get the link to all the wonderful things that my podcasts and guests and I give away for free to subscribers, and you'll get reminders when we publish this every other week. My co-host Melania Trump is actually quarantined in her glam room. She sent us this voice memo with an update. You can also see other updates at themelaniashow.com. Oh, hi there, American Chichil. Here are some updates from the White House. The CDC just categorized Kellyanne Conway as a level four biohazard. She's been locked in a bunker 70 feet under the White House. And immediately, the Rose Garden stopped dying. Donald is tweeting so much, his phone could be contaminated. So we hired back the Hope of the Hicks. Every 30 minutes, she leans over to hypnotize Donald with her cleavage so that Dr. Fauci can sanitize it. And now we have a special report from my Secret Service agent, Johnson Smith. Dr. Fauci was not at the briefing today. He had me escort him to a small room where he banged his head against the wall and screamed about some orange idiot. All right, let's go to the interview with Sammy Rangel of Life After Hate. You know, I wonder, because we, we talked about before that, like when you were discovering as you were going through your own journey in activism, that racism is the co- root cause of a lot of problems. And there's a lot of awareness about and growing awareness. We have there's a lot of work to do about racism in the country. And then white extremists seem to use that and say, well, now we're being oppressed or like there's something that they're not understanding that acknowledging racism isn't saying that we have to oppress white people. How do you explain that to them? Well, you know, first of all, we, we don't start off by explaining anything. Uh, let's be clear about that. And I think it's a tactical error to try to debate or to try to counter a perspective, a viewpoint, or a grievance that is being shared, whether at the top of their lungs or politely. Uh, the, the first step is to listen. And I think the reason people are against listening is because they feel it's a form of concession, that you're conceding in some way. Uh, and then we feel that in order to not concede, that the only next course, natural course of action is to condemn. When we know that you don't need to concede nor condemn in order to have meaningful dialogue. But a part of meaningful dialogue is listening. And that listening is just as it was for me. For them, it is a validating experience it, it, that finally someone sees me and hears me. That doesn't mean that finally someone agrees with me. That's not what that means at all. I never felt like the guy who helped me agreed with anything I was doing or saying. I just felt like he had a way of expressing that he understood mm-hmm. what I was saying, which was very, it was a very new sensation for me, perhaps even a first time sensation. So we think that that's where that, but by the time we get to where we can ex- exchange dialogue around the topics like what you're talking about, what we, what we try to do, I think, is recognize that if it is their grievance, we don't need to say it's not true. What we can offer at times, I believe, is uh, alternative experiences, alternative viewpoints, but that don't require us to say, so see, you're wrong. I think people will naturally get there on their own when they're introduced to other perspectives and global narratives, you know, the way we approach life in general, when we can show them there is a possibility of, at another way. I think people are welcome to that. And, they, and they're the ones who want to challenge everything we say. But we don't need to get caught up in challenging back. You don't need to hold your ground to hold your ground. In other words, you know, we don't need to be resistant to their resistance, if that makes any sense. It's, it's, it's not necessary in order to have this conversation. So it's basically the opposite of what goes on on Twitter, is what you're saying. Well, you know what? I don't know if you know what we did on Twitter, which we're showing it's it is showing to be very promising. 
we're trying to be very sensitive to the fact that so many people are trying to pull things down, uh, censor, shut the accounts down. And we don't want these groups to think that that's what we're advocating for, right? Because again, we're not calling people out, right? But what we what we did do was we found a way to stand right next to the hateful comment and draw attention to the fact that we recognize that this was a hateful comment and asking them, do you recognize that this is a hateful comment? And what we saw people were doing through this effort was they were doing a couple of things. They were either pulling down their, their own comment once we just simply stood next to it, pointing to it as a hateful comment, um, they pulled it down or the people who would typically share something like that, seeing us standing there, stopped sharing it. And so we saw a reduction in how quickly these hateful comments were shared. Mm-hmm. And we saw people self-selecting to delete their own comments once it was identified. We actually influenced behavior on Twitter by simply pointing out that, hey, we think that this could be hate. And not asking for particular action, not asking for them to do something different, not saying you're wrong. We just we just called out the behavior for what it was, and they self-selected, their audience self-selected what to do with that content. That's a beautiful that's strategy, a, yeah. That is amazing. Like, yeah, I, I was amazing. like, you know, such a simple thing, but it was, it was quite complex. It, it was a deterrent to online behavior. Who can bolster that? Who can say that they've been able to change online behavior like that? Like, yeah. other than pulling stuff down, right? It's, yeah. it, it was an amazing, and I think that's a great example of how we don't need to concede and we don't need to condemn, but we bear witness. And you know, you're but, giving them the opportunity to, to see that, to see it for themselves or to not. It's giving the yeah. benefit of the doubt of the human. It's reminds me of my mom. Um, I once had this very terrible heckler at a show and um, she said, I wish I was there because I would have went up to him and said, I think your mother raised you better. And I think she might have been the only one to shut him up because just by just oh. giving someone giving someone a, a comment that's not like, shut the fuck up you know, be quiet, mm-hmm. shut up. Mm-hmm. You just, just admit that. I think, I think you could do better than this. It's a way that can just make people self-selectively change their course. There is a simple, there was, this kind of came from a simple lesson I learned in school about sit, sudden infant uh, syndrome, right? The kids that are dying in their cribs. There is a staggering statistic that's, that asks how many uh, SIDS cases have been uh, documented, right? Like have been seen, uh, documented as observed. And the answer to that is zero. There have been no sudden infant death syndrome cases directly observed by a professional or a, by a parent or, you know, a caretaker. Wow. We, what, I was kind of stunned by that. Yeah. I wasn't sure what that meant. But uh, as the discussion went further, what it means is that abuse goes away under supervision. That was the, that was typically like the the end result, meaning that the reason it wouldn't have been observed or documented because the the field was trying to indicate that these are most likely cases of abuse. Mm. And so under certain situations, it just doesn't happen, which is why there's no observed cases. There should be observed cases with the amount of SIDS cases that there have been, but there are none, which would lead a practical person to assume then perhaps it's not a syndrome, but actual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you apply that science to what, what we did on Twitter, which is why I feel that bearing witness is so important, when people come out of their homes, get off of their couches, they leave the coffee table to engage with other people, these types of abuse are less likely to occur. Mm. Um you know, it's we we have. I, that's why I was thinking, and when we went to El Paso, thousands and thousands of people there. It was critical that the community see that so many people were interested in this event and weren't just going to let it go away quietly. They weren't just going to turn the channel or the page. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that is a discourager for this kind of behavior. You know, people again, there's accountability there, yeah. but it doesn't require condemnation or conceding. Now, when we talked, you mentioned that with um, the people in Charlottesville, you said some of them had shame that they've lost friends, family. 
there's been a lot of debate about that. So you, you know, someone gets outed as being part of one of these groups. Um, do you fire them? Is that helping? Do you drop them as a friend? What's your thoughts on, on the response if it's good sure. or bad? Well, let's, let's look at precedence that's been set in other areas. More and more employees, when they find out that their employees have substance abuse problems or mental health problems, what the change in the rule has been over the years has been that the, what we should do first is try to see if getting this person help changes things. So I think in the past, as soon as you were uh, identified as having these kind of afflictions or issues, you could be fired. Mm -hmm. Now, employers try to get you counseling and try to get you support. And then if things don't, you know, and then you put on a plan, of course, you know, to measure if things are changing for the better, because the organization ultimately has to protect itself, but they they also take steps to, you know, to try to help uh, rather than just condemn. Mm -hmm. Department of Corrections across the country has taken a similar approach in many states, not all states, but in many states. Whereas, so now instead of um, automatically sending a so-called offender back to prison for smoking pot or drinking alcohol, they run them through different levels of treatment, right? And mm -hmm. uh, as they say, as the level of resistance goes up, so do the consequences. So you might start out with having to urinate in a cup more frequently, or you might have to start by turning yourself in for the weekend, but we're not going to turn you, we're not going to make you go back to prison, or we're going to help you go to see a counselor, you know, for 90 days. And if you can make it through that, you know, we'll, we'll wipe the slate clean. So I think the, the precedence that has been set around the country is that when people show that they have an issue or problem, if they're willing, you should try to get them some help. And then, of course, if they're not willing, that's indicative of where, what your next steps need to be. But there's an opportunity for assistance. And, and so I think if we look at the lessons that we've learned in other systems, I don't think uh, tarring and feathering people the research doesn't support shaming people as an effective strategy or tool that affects change. And so I think it's counterintuitive. These people will often dig in deeper in their beliefs. These people will often uh, become more of whatever they are. So if it's uh, if they're already violent, they may become more violent. You know, if they're already leaning towards extremism, this could very well push them over. Now, that doesn't mean we don't hold people accountable. I think it means that we need to rethink what we're doing to hold people accountable, what the end goal is. I think these are reactions. You can't blame society for how they feel about these things, but at the same time, we have to look at what we're trying to achieve. And, you know, we don't want to make a bigger enemy than the one we have. And so if there is a way to help somebody through this process and maybe even get help and, and, and lead to some change, I think we're all better served. Mm. But it doesn't mean we can't hold people accountable. Doesn't mean you can't you can't fire somebody. Doesn't mean you can't you know say this this has to end. You know, but it, what it means is that I think instead of having reactions and, and emotional reactions to things, we need to maybe think our way through this to see how we can benefit everyone, including the person that needs to be held accountable. Mm. Like, what could we do to possibly change the course of action that this person is on? And what happens when that person leaves? Where does he go? What does he do? How visible is he? Like now, domestic violence model, I think, is a genius model. It, it says that you cannot be discharged from program uh, for committing an offense, right? Like for, for assaulting your partner. But the, that person will go to jail. That person could go to prison, if depending on the situation. But as soon as they're done being held accountable in that sense, they're right back into the program. Like you got to mm -hmm. keep them in the program. Whereas like other programs like addiction, like uh, addictions or uh, alcohol programs, they terminate you. They kick you out for if you continue to drink. They kick you out if you smoke. And I think it's counterintuitive. Like you, you don't want to. This is exactly where the person needs to be. And unless you're trying to cherry pick clients, these are the clients that you signed on to help. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that relapse and using continued use and deception, it's all a part of the dynamic of what you're helping overcome. Like, so if a person manifests the, the symptoms or the conditions that you're there to treat, I don't think that's a good reason to kick somebody out. That's a good reason to get more involved. Yeah. And so that that same logic 
I think is like, we need to get more involved in this person's life. There needs to be an intervention other than a complete and total rejection of someone, which is what I experienced as a child, like complete rejection. My state, I grew up in the state of Illinois. By the time I was 14, they started sending me to other states and Mm -hmm. telling me they were just fed up with me and kicked me out of a whole state. Wow. (laughs) Not many people can um, say that, Sammy. That is is extreme, right? And And just like when I went to that prison, that was a very shaming moment in my life where it's like, damn, like I can't even get into, I'm such a terrible person. I can't even get into prison. Yeah. And it's like, like, yeah, the state is, is letting you prove it. Like to, you do bad things to act out, to prove that you're unlovable and they keep saying yes. And, and what I do then in that case is like, all right, if that's what you think, then let me give it to you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let me show Let me show you. Yeah. I get when you've been talked about that on your TED talk about how you went to the prison, you heard them say, we don't want, we don't want this kid. I just kept thinking like, what was the look on your face and how that must have felt to be told that you're not wanted in a prison? It's, uh, it's unreal. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's like when you, a lot of parents have been kicking their kids out Mm -hmm. and I just, I remember there was a time when my dad came to, um, you know, of course I was in, sent to detention. So my dad had to come pick me up. Now here, here was here was the here was the routine. My dad would pick me up. He would take me home. They would beat me. I would run away. It, it was just mm-hmm. it was the routine, and and they would try to keep me from running away. Like that was that was the routine. I remember my dad went so far as to put like uh, deadbolts that you had to have keys inside and out to open the door, like and nail nailing windows shut. Things like my dad did a lot of things to try to keep me from running away. There was one day when he came to get me from detention, he picks me up. We get about a mile away from detention. He pulls over, opens the door and tells me to get out. Now, I knew I was going to run away already. I already knew. Like, I'm not staying there. There was no way he was going to keep me in the house. But when he did that, that hurt me in a very new way. Mm. That that was, I knew my dad was giving up on me. Mm. You know, even though I never felt like he was trying not to give up. I, it's weird. Like, I knew my parents were bad people, but for him to do this was just another wound he left on me. It was a, it was a new way of him hurting me, mm. you know, and it, it, in many ways, what we're talking about, this total, complete condemnation of people, nobody walks away from being that condemned, questioning whether or not they are right or wrong. They're questioning what is wrong with the world. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, when they're and somebody already sees so much wrong with the world, it's just more evidence that this is why I'm on the path I'm on. And so then are people then getting involved with um, these groups because of trauma? Is that if it's no longer just kind of that stereotype of that kid, um, that poor kid with the tats, it's it could be anyone and they're professionalizing themselves. Like, can this really be anyone or does it someone with some sort of trauma there acting out through these organizations? Well, going back to lessons learned, um, I was in crisis intervention training and I was asked, how do you know if someone is in crisis? And of course we had all these reasons. We had all these answers to that, right? But the, the answer, the awareness that they were trying to help us get to is if a person perceives that they're in crisis, they're in crisis, Hmm. right? To them, to them, they're in crisis because you can get into a lot of value judgment about what crisis is. Well, to you, that's spilt milk, but to them, it's crisis, right? So, you know, that's what they were trying to teach us, like to to that person. And, and I'm often asked about types of abuse and levels of abuse, or people hear my story and say, well, my abuse was nothing compared to your, that's apples and oranges. Your abuse to you was what my abuse to me was. Like it's, you have the right to have that feeling and, and sentiment about your experience. Like it's not about comparison, you know, it, it can hurt you the way it hurt me. And there are things that probably don't hurt me that hurt other people. But that doesn't mean I'm in crisis. So crisis is to the crisis to that person as it is to them. So to answer your question, going back to the question, in many ways, uh, it could be trauma, and I think there there is definitely correlation that we need to be paying attention to to trauma that um, you know. And but let's talk about what trauma looks like. What what do you think of when you think of trauma versus what do I think of when I think of trauma? Is it traumatic when the uh, the tractor company 
that has been, you know, feeding your family for the last 60 or 70 years is shipped out of state? Is that traumatic? Mm-hmm. Right. And is that enough? Is that enough for someone to resonate with uh, a nationalist political perspective when we say, let's put America first? And, and they're so willing to buy into that because of the, uh, the experience they've just had around losing their livelihood because this tractor company was sold and, and shipped off. Right. Mm-hmm. And so and then somebody says, yeah, we can put America first. And let me tell you why we don't have jobs. Well, because this person, this person and this person. And, and so it, it seems very attractive. It seems very it seems to make sense, because once you've bought in a little, you can buy in a lot. Yeah. Right. And, and it's and you start to be persuaded in what we would call persuadables. And so I think in some cases it's trauma. But I also think some people are extremely persuadable. There are a lot of people who haven't picked a side, but who are vulnerable to picking a side if the messaging and marketing is just right. Um, you know, and so you can win somebody over. You might have walked in the Sands Club thinking you were going to buy eggs and cereal and walk out of there with a brand new canopy for your deck at 700 bucks, right? Mm-hmm. You were pers- what, are we going to say that's trauma or are we going to say that's persuadable? You, you were persuaded. And there are, I think there are a lot of people out here who don't know what to think, but someone comes along and perhaps they have inside information, perhaps they've leveraged their access, you know, to being able to purchase social media content to understand the population. Why do you think they ask you what your zip code is when you purchase something? Mm. Um, how is it that you looked at Amazon, you looked at socks, and next thing you open up your Yahoo account, and there's the banner for the socks you just looked at? People are targeting persuadable people. So it's not just, I don't think it's just trauma, although I believe that's a significant role. I believe it's also people who are vulnerable and, and perhaps naive and persuadable to certain marketing strategies meant to persuade you. Mm-hmm. This whole concept around Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter, you know, there are rumors that it's it's been it, it was a strategic marketing plan to counter the type of messaging coming from one group that would persuade others to believe differently. It's, it's I don't think that people are above being persuaded. Um, and so I think some people see a little bit of truth and then hear something that is based on a little bit of truth, but is really underhanded or, you know, intended for a specific agenda to benefit someone or a group of someone's more than others. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, trauma is a part of it, of course. You know, my, I think my story is traditional and typical in that sense. But then I've met others who, you know, this kid became radicalized because his dad is a police officer. And he watched a video around Blue Lives Matter, and that video juxtaposed themselves against Black Lives Matter. And then he walked away from that video feeling that Black Lives Matter was a group of people who meant his dad harm. Mm. Right? Now, on the surface, that's just marketing. But underneath that, I also know that dad has been gone most of his life because he's been in the military. Mm. You know, and so... But yet, but he hasn't rejected his dad, but he is, um, you know, he's identified with him through this video and as a result felt like he could protect his dad by embracing this sort of ideology about Black Lives Matter and about Blue Lives Matter, which be, which you can call it that, but it was really about, it became about race. Mm-hmm. The undertones of that were all about race, not yes. a particular yep. activist group. It, it turned into a racial dispute. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know what I mean? So it's, yeah, yeah, it all, yeah. I think there's mixes for people. And, and you're, you know, I think this points to the complexity of the issues we're taking on is that it, it's, it's not one size fits all. In fact, you know, it's, it's a whole bunch of different sizes and uh, it's kind of like having too many options so much to the point where you, you can't track what is attracting people nowadays. It's, yeah. it could be, if you have, if you have 500, Things that could attract people, and it only takes three to snag you. Well, the combinations of that are are unlimited. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which makes it difficult to profile, difficult to assess, difficult to tell how far in or how far out someone is, or what's the push, what's the pull, what's the attractor. You know, it's it gets very complex. But I I do think people are disgruntled. People have grievances. I think social media plays an extremely uh, important part in this, you know, there's a lot of responsibility to be handed out there. And of course, availability and access, political climate. These are all things, man, that are just factors in a very complex world right now. And I'm so curious about the far right's cultural 
touch points sometimes. Like, you know, the tiki tortures are Polynesian. And this Nordic thing, like they're obsessed with like, I've heard they they use like Nordic mythology and then they're using Nordic symbols. What is this about? Um, there, so it's kind of interesting. I've, I've actually talked with a group on the East Coast who is, uh, who is looking at the connection. These are students. They're looking at the connection between the Nordic mythology of symbols and history and white supremacy. Again, I think at the very least complex area is that these guys are trying to look for like white purity, you know, like where, where were the purest of, of the whites at, at what era, at what time? Uh, and Tony, one of our other co-founders, really understands this era and what was attractive about it. But it, it does go all the way back to Israel and, you know, and things like that. But he he points out that the these symbols really predate, like, the swastikas, which have really become, uh, like, taboo, yeah. right, in, the, in this country. And so these guys are, are trying to promote it as – it's kind of like trying to go back to your Native American culture, so to speak. So – I think these guys are searching for their native cultures, you know, or, or a version of it that would, that would give them a pure bloodline, so to speak. And so they go back, but it was interesting because what, what this college group found out is that there was this large group trying to use Nordic symbols and they were praising this Nordic saint, right? And this, but this, what they didn't realize is that the saint that they were building their whole, their whole manifesto on was actually black. Um, so it's, 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 it's kind of that type of ignorance, right? It's kind of that type of ignorance. Like, I, I think people are just trying to rebrand and separate and branch out, you know, and Chicago gangs went through this. Chicago gangs went through this and it was really one of the reasons that was made it easier for me to leave was because things were changing so much that people just wanted to be their own leader. People wanted to be their own group. They didn't want to have to answer to the heavy handedness of other groups. They wanted to be the heavy hand. And so they started branching out and making their own versions of gangs. And I kind of see this happening with these groups. Now they're branching out and trying to make their own versions. They all want to be the Richard Spencers. They all want to be the guy who's known They they're tired of walking in other people's shadows. And so I think some way, in some ways it, it's an uneducated attempt to rebrand themselves. They're just desperately trying to make a mark in this way and try to fantasize about how to do that. But others are really trying to create like this connection to, you know, the pre-immigrate, the pre-immigration uh, issues that they now have to face. So they, they want to be associated with the older races and, and it's a little more complex than that, but it is quite, yeah, it is quite, um, it's, in my opinion, it's, it's somewhat of a juvenile attempt to, yeah. to rebrand, rebrand themselves be a little more palatable. See, we're not using the swastika. We're not like, you know, I sat, I sat in Michigan for four days with a group of white supremacists and skinheads, and they did not want to be seen as racist. They were totally emphatic that they are not racist. And Frankie said, you know, I believe you guys. Like, I, I, I totally believe you, which is validating, right? And he says, but you should know that if you listen to, if you blast racist music, and you use the symbols that are associated with racism, that it is quite acceptable for people to assume that you are a racist. So if you want to separate yourself uh, from that perception, then you have to stop associating yourself with racist symbols, racist music. You know, and it, it was an oversimplistic response to what they had to say, but it, it was like, how how do you do the things that sound and make you appear racist and still want feel like you're being confused as a racist? Like, you know, like, look at your symbols, look at your tattoos. These have a long history of racism in this country. They're they're not really, you know, symbols of they've never been accepted nationally as symbols of pride. Yeah. You know, and trying to challenge the ideology. But, you know, that was like on the third night. And and these guys eventually the the leader who was the youngest brother ended up leaving the white supremacy movement and the other brother stayed in, but started to kind of water down his, uh, his ideology and approaches to it. It seems like so, a lot of it is like people desperately trying to find significance and authenticity in their own life. And they've just wandered into this land of, of hate as a way to do that. Angela said, Angela, one of our co-founders, we were just having a conversation around something similar to what you said. 
where she says that people are probably even unaware uh, of two things. One, that they're actively being recruited, and two, that they've already been recruited because they, the subtleness of how these things lead to that. You know, like people are being groomed and don't realize that they're being groomed or that they have been groomed. Because, you know, the language has duplicitous meaning. It's dog whistles. It's, it seems, you know, when you're not in the know, when you're not in the know of what some of these terms or ideas mean, they they actually sound harmless. You know, like, let's make America great again. Like, I get it. You know, that sounds that sounds like a good idea. And then you start to break down what that means. You listen to the interviews. You listen to the time periods. You know, you, you start to feel, you, you observe what you observe at the rallies and you start to realize, like, I'm starting to get the feeling like this doesn't include everybody, right? Yeah. And, or, or that, you know, the other person who, who resonates with that feels like, finally, someone's speaking up for me. Yeah. You know, disenfranchised groups, you know, Latino groups wanted people to speak up for them. African-American groups wanted people to speak up from them. So from their perspective, they're saying, why can't somebody speak up for me? Why does that why does that make me a racist? Right. And in and of itself, it doesn't in and of itself. It doesn't. Right. And and so there's there is the strong argument like you're right. It doesn't. What happens, though, is that when people are condemning, right, when people when the when when society starts to take hold of these ideas and then they, they outwardly condemn these ideas, the people who have embraced them have to now face a challenge. Yeah. You know, and typically what they're going to say is, well, your definition of this is wrong, which makes the, the divide between me and you now very, you know, much wider and, and will continue to grow wider. Or it makes you challenge what you've embraced. And unless people are introduced to a particular way, in a particular way, to what they've embraced as perhaps faulty or dysfunctional, uh, if you don't do that carefully, all you do is um, you, you start working against yourself and you help them dig in. You know, the research shows that when you talk about the negativity of someone's behavior, you actually help drive the connection to that negative behavior in deeper. Oh, wow. You don't actually help. You don't root it out. You actually just help dig it in deeper. You create a larger attachment for that person to the behavior. Wow. It's a natural reaction. You know, I try to take something from you that you believe is yours. You're going to try to hold on to that. That's not the way to do it. Is your work the work that life after hate does dangerous for you, for the other co-founders? It's extremely dangerous. So, you know, my family, my children, you know, my loved ones, they, they worry about themselves. They worry about me. Our team receives death threats routinely, you know, after events, you know, like after shootings and after, um, you know, international events that occur. A lot of times we become the target for, you know, like trolls and hateful mm -hmm. emails. I don't think I've lost friends, but I have certainly been criticized by people who are my friends for focusing on white supremacy, yet none of them ever criticized me when I focused on gangs and inner city Hispanic and black youth for 20 years. Like, no one ever said, how come you're not focusing on whites? Like. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's only now that I'm doing this work, you know, and so people have their negative opinions. But I mean, to be honest, look at how many people have lost their lives doing this kind of activist work and trying to find very gentle ways of talking about very sensitive issues. And, mm -hmm. you know, my dad was born in Texas, but he's of Mexican descent. My mom is Mescalero Apache. Uh, and I've been raised by a Lakota man. So I'm not even white. But we were, uh, there was this uh, NSM group, National Socialist Movement group out of Germany that did a YouTube podcast of Life After Hate. And they criticized the whole organization. They were calling them Jews and race traders and whatnot wow. as they were, you know, going through each of our profiles. And when they got to me, they said, and this guy, this guy's the worst. He's, he's a double Jew. <laughs> <laughs> He's the he's the ringleader, you know. It's yes, this work is undoubtedly dangerous. And my, and remember, through our exit program, we do do face to face interventions. I've been all over the country to do those, you know. And you never know what you're walking into. Mm. 
but it needs to be done, you know, mm-hmm. and my philosophy, my philosophy is, you know, like we do our due diligence to try to protect ourselves and to make sure that we're not being ambushed or shut, set up, you know, being at that funeral was dangerous. You know, you don't know what's going to happen there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've been to a number of protests throughout the country. We've been to a number of community events that were marketed for a month before we got there. But I'll be honest with you, and this is Sammy speaking, you know, this is me. I risked my life for for many years, almost 30 years, uh, for a cause with no purpose. And I don't take an issue with risking my life now for a cause that I feel has great value and purpose. You know, if I was willing to die for that, I'm willing to live for this, and I'm I'm willing to put it all on the line. Like that's I've been doing that since I've gotten out of prison, and I'm not scared, but I'm cautious. I'm not mm-hmm. paranoid, but I'm careful. You know, but at the same time, I've never let fear stop me from doing anything. Yeah, um, and I don't see it yeah. doing working any differently now. And the world is better for it, for sure. Now, I've I'm wondering if it's possible for if it if it's a concern if it's happened you have this huge network of people of formers who are helping infiltration by white supremacists who are fronting that they are rehabilitating but then they just want to kind of infiltrate and try to prevent people from being rehabilitated if that makes sense yeah is that we have um I think, yeah, and of course it is a concern. And I think um, one of the measures that we've taken is that we take people through a, a, a leveling process. You don't just come in and join the bigger picture. We move very slowly with that. And, you know, before we were using Facebook secret groups as as a housing for the support groups. But now since, since you know, we've, we've rethought that, we've, we've moved over to a forum to kind of hold the same support group services in there. And there we're able to control a lot more of the security levels and, and, you know, access to the platform, access to the individuals in that platform. We're able to control that a lot more. And so a person, for lack of a better term, will go through an extended vetting process, mm-hmm. you know. And so in that process, as as our comfort levels rise with that person, we will slowly give more and more access to more and more of the organization and the supportive services that we offer. So it's so far we we have been able to avoid, you know, anything like that. But at the same time, you know, we do know it's a risk, but we think we have some systems in place that can help protect us. You know, nothing's foolproof, but, we, you know, we've been doing it now for going on eight or nine years now. And so we feel like we have a nice confident working methodology to, to make sure that that's not happening. Mm-hmm. And it has happened. Robert actually found his interview was one of his interviews with somebody. It was the first, first call and later found that that interview had been recorded by the other guy and posted on YouTube. And at the end of the, at the end of this recording, the guy says, you know, and this is a white supremacist, right? He says, overall, he's not a bad guy and left it at that. <laughs> so, you know, the, these things happen, but there is a lot of training that goes into so that even when things like that happen, we haven't said or done anything that would compromise us yes, um, or anyone else. So, you know, we, we feel fairly confident that we can manage and mitigate that risk. We have been hacked before, though. We, our organization mm. has been hacked in the wow. past. So, you know, we've had to deal with that. And, we're, and so we put... You know, we've put a we've put a lot of systems in place to try to prevent those things from happening. Why do they want to hack you? Like, what does that mean when they hack you? What is how does that help them? Um, I don't think it helps them. I think it's probably like a feel good project. Like they've been able to to infiltrate, you know, and try to cor- corrupt or create havoc. I know some of our online platforms were hacked one time. Uh, we caught an early attempt to hack our, uh, and actually they actually got. Pretty, it's it's weird. PayPal is probably like Fort Knox, but somehow this person was able to hack our PayPal account um, and started like running up a bill. But you know, we have systems in place that alert us, so we were able to cut it off before it got like over a thousand dollars. And then you know that led to a, a series of other steps we have. But I, I think people just do it to be disruptive. You know, it's a it's probably a form of hate, it's probably a form of you know resentment for who we are, but. I don't think it helps their cause at all. It's 
it's just them able to say, you know, look, we're we're poking the bear here, you know, yeah. and and got away with it. You know, and it's some it's pointless because what we keep our um, our client information, you know, really secure. But you know, I don't think any attacks have on that have happened. But certainly our our Facebook platforms, YouTube, uh, mm. Twitter, all of those things have been subject to to those attempts, and even some of them successful. Wow. wow. To, to wrap up a few, um, three questions to wrap up. If, um, if you've been someone who's had someone, a white supremacist, someone from the far right do something to you, how do you forgive them? You know, forgiveness, you know, that's a bigger question. If you ask me, forgiveness is, uh, I think forgiveness is often misunderstood. I, I wrote a book called forebears, the myths of forgiveness. Cause I, when I when I when we go back to the beginning of our conversation, when I was in the beginning parts of my change, I realized that I had a lot of myths around beliefs around forgiveness that weren't true. Mm-hmm. One, you know, one of those being that you know, and that the person I needed to forgive the most was my mom, and I thought I couldn't forgive her one because she wouldn't even admit that she had done these things to me. So I thought, well, that takes that off the table then, mm-hmm. or. Uh, I remember one time I told her I forgave her and she was like, you know, for what? So she wouldn't even accept my forgiveness. So I'm like, well, that takes it off. To, you know, like you have these beliefs about what yeah. it means and, and then it can disrupt your ability to be able to heal in that way. Right. And so, and really I've heard that, you know, like forgiveness is if you're the first to forgive, you're the first to love again, mm-hmm. you know? And so if you, if you become unwilling to be forgiving, you're also become, un- there's a party that becomes unwilling to be loving. But you have to challenge these ideas that forgiveness has all these strings attached. Like, does it mean you have to have a relationship with the person you're forgiving? Does it mean that you that what they've done is not as wrong as you want them to know it is? Does it mean in some way you were wrong? Does it mean that somehow you're conceding? You know, like, there's all these ideas that we have around it. Does the person deserve it? You know, is it too soon? You know, or how could I? You know, um, what if the person's dead or unavailable? Like, how am I supposed to complete the process? Mm-hmm. Like, there's all these ideas that we have around what forgiveness means. And I I think in many terms, I've, I try to help people around these ideas of forgiveness. Is one is, you know, are you even willing to have a conversation about it? Because I think that's, if you are able to approach the idea of forgiveness, even if you're unwilling, let's say you're unwilling right now, but you're willing to at least have the conversation about it. Not that you're going to do anything, but just have it. Then the forgiveness process has already started. If you can get them to at least say, I'm willing to have the conversation, but there's no way in hell I'm going to do it. The process has already started because we've been able to say, I'm open to even under these circumstances, I'm open. Right. And trying to find a way to even get them to contemplate if this is even reasonable to talk about even mm-hmm. if it seems impossible. That's the first step. Second step, I think, is to change what it means. And to, and oftentimes you got to go through with what it doesn't mean, like what I've just shared with you. And, and I think once you can find the way that it can resonate with them. So, for example, we think forgiveness has to do with the past. But what if forgiveness really had something to do with the future? What mm-hmm. if it was the first step in setting up a better future? Because I can't make your past better, right? Mm-hmm. And when you talk about how do you rewrite your story, right? It's, well, you you rewrite what you're focusing on. You rewrite what it means to you. Mm-hmm. If it's if we have to repurpose the event, you know, and oftentimes the the perpetrator of the acts that were committed against you do not are not required to be a part of the conversation when we talk around forgiveness, like that. Forgiveness is something that we are doing to heal ourselves, and it means in some way we have to resolve the debt that is owed to us. Mm-hmm. And the only when when there is a debt that is owed to you that is not likely to be repaid, and even and even if it was repaid, we have to question the value of what we think that payment actually looks like. Like, what could my mom give to me? say to me that wipes out the debt and the effects of that debt, mm-hmm. right? There's really nothing. She, I, in some ways she owed, you know, like I felt like she owed me, you know, better, 
um, as my mom, but there's nothing she can say. Even if my mom said, Miho, I take your apology and I'm, or your forgiveness and I, I'm asking you for it and I'm sorry. And I, you know, I see it, that would only go so far. Mm-hmm. And for some victims, some people who I know who have gotten that, they often feel like it didn't do much for them at all. Mm. And so we put all this emphasis on on seeking it from this person, seeking something, you know, this reconciliation from the other person. And then we get it. It doesn't really go very far. Mm. You still have these voids. Right. And so the healing nature of, the, of forgiveness is really a very personal influence. It's um, it's a uh, it's for us. It's not despite the person, um, but it's the healing is I'm going to heal. I'm going to allow myself to heal. And one of the ways we talk about that, I talk about that is not moving on, but moving forward. You, Mm -hmm. you can, you can take as much of this as you need to with you. But if we can get you moving, if we can get some momentum going, friction alone will start to wear away at the, at the, at the enormous weight of what you're carrying around. Uh, it'll start to wear it away, and little by little, your load will be lightened so that it becomes more manageable. And then eventually, you get to a crossroads in your life where you have to choose between using both your hands to grab onto what's in front of you, or choosing to hang on to what you're holding on to instead. And it's no one's place or time to tell you when that comes or how that happens, but it happens. It's a natural part of what happens when you start the healing process. Eventually, you're you're faced with a part of your journey that says you have to fully embrace this or make a conscious decision not yet. And it's okay if you say not yet because that time may be coming still. It may not be here yet. And so in many ways, we're helping people find ways to heal despite what their past looks like, despite what the perpetrator looks like despite what their thoughts are about it, in, in a spirit of having a better future, mm. having a better tomorrow, better, you know, even a better next five minutes in some cases. It's a, it's a very sensitive and delicate conversation, but I don't know if you've ever seen The Forgiveness Project. If you haven't, it's worth looking up. There are stories of people who have forgiven things that we probably here in the Western world think are unforgivable. Wow. You know, um, men... Uh, there is a uh, Jenny Foray whose daughter was killed by um, by a black militia group in in South Africa. He had, you know, it was basically a a gang with governmental powers as an army, and they killed they killed Jenny's daughter because mm-hmm. she was white. And in South Africa, she went and she turned this man. She she went to him in prison, got him to change, fought for his release. And now they partner together to talk about this extremism and to talk about power of forgiveness and reconciliation together in the same breath. Like there's hundreds of stories like that. And it makes you wonder, like, could I forgive what I've been through when you hear things like that? Yeah, that's really you don't yeah. you don't you don't get people to forgive. I think you you make it safe for them to consider as as, as an option. Yeah, that's great. That's a great way to put it. Now, if your if your friend or your family member, you see them becoming radicalized, you see them moving towards white supremacist far right ideas. What do you do? Well, I think you know you have to say something. You have to show your concern. I think you have to reach out to help. There's groups like Life After Hate, and there's a number of you know if you go online and there's a number of people out there trying to position themselves to be to be, you know, there for people in these situations. I think the worst thing you can do is stick your head in the ground and, and hope that it goes away. It won't. You know, parents are, you know, I personally don't understand it, but as a as a social worker, I do. I, You know, parents often feel like they can't do anything about it, but that's, that's rarely the case. That's rarely the case. Mm-hmm. It may mean changing dynamics. It may mean changing your approach or your involvement and how much you supervise and, place yourself next to these things, but you have to get involved. You have to say something. And, you know, there is not a single case that I have come aware, become aware of, of a lone wolf shooter where somebody else didn't know what was going to happen. So why didn't this person say something? Oftentimes they're stuck. Oftentimes they feel 
they're afraid. Uh, they, they're worried for the person because they know the onslaught of what could happen to that person if they were to say something. And what if I'm wrong, but I say something and then he has to suffer all these, like there's all that fear, but in the face of what the threat is, of what it could end up, how it could end up expressing itself, the, I think the very worst thing you could do is nothing. You mm -hmm. have to say, you know, and you have to fight. And we have to redefine what help looks like. I, I'll be honest, the the safest place for me at that time in my life was in prison. And it was the safest place for everyone else. But I also understand why somebody may not want to put me there if they love me. But what if that's the only place I even have a chance of getting help? Mm -hmm. uh, what if that's the only place I have a chance of protecting potential victims? You know, interventions work. And I know we all have reasons to be afraid. But at the same time, we cannot afford to stick our head in the ground when it comes to these things. We have to get involved in some way. Getting help is, I think, oftentimes a scary concept, but it is probably one of the only ways out of this. Mm. Very few families are equipped to deal with this on their own. And if you're a white supremacist and you're... And this person is listening to this right now, maybe even sneering or what do you say to them? You know, um, there is a way out. If you're a lot like any of us here, you know, you didn't start out thinking this is the way it would be, but it's come to this. It's come to this, uh, this point in your life and, um, you're not alone, you know, and there's no judgment here. There's no condemnation. There's no expectation. There's no requirement. But we we would open our doors to you if that is something that you're considering. And if you have questions, you can find us on social media or email us or um, use the phone number on our website to leave a message and call us. Like we'll respond. You know, you don't you don't have to do this alone, and you shouldn't do this alone. And if any of our experiences taught us anything is that if it could have been done alone, we probably all would have done it alone. But we we have found it to be extremely necessary and helpful to partner with other people who want to change. And this is the one, I think, and the only place where you don't have to worry about how you're going to be received. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's And all of our services are safe. They're private. They're confidential. And we'll take it at your speed, you know, and we're going to be here. Your family doesn't have to do it alone, and you don't have to do it alone. That's what I would say. Yeah. Thank you, Sammy. Um, now, where can people find out more about Life After Hate? Um, you can go to our website at lifeafterhate.org, and you can also just type in Life After Hate on Twitter or on Facebook. It's easy to find us. Fantastic. Um, well, thank you so much, Sammy, again, for all of this incredible information, incredible insight. Um, and I think we're going to learn a lot from that. Thank you so much. Thank you for doing this interview. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed talking with you. It was really fun. I did as well. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. That was something, right? Wow. Here are a few things to keep in mind. The violent far right has changed their name, up their marketing, and they are actively recruiting. And if you know someone who has been taken in by them, geography is not a limitation anymore. At least listen to the last part of this podcast to hear some tips from Sammy. Life After Hate is a resource. It does not take someone who has been in trauma to become a member of the violent far right. The broken home narrative of the white supremacist is no longer valid. It can simply be someone who is persuadable. The violent far right is using the language of civil rights to promote their cause, even going so far as to say they're not racist. There is a way to melt away hatred on Twitter that does not entail being hateful. It is possible to forgive people who do horrendous acts. And remember that for people who are involved in the violent far right, their networks are vast and they make it very hard to leave. Let me know how all of this goes and what you're thinking. This is, for me, a really powerful interview um, and really opened my eyes to what is going on out there. Before we go into the I Don't Care Do You segment, I'd like to do a few things. First, I want to encourage everyone to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It really, really helps other people find us. Second, I want to tell you that you can follow Reconcile the Isle on my Twitter and Instagram at Lauren Logi, L-O-G-I. And do consider signing up at laurenlogi.com slash podcast to get the free stuff from me and my guests. This episode, we're giving away Four Bears, The Myths of Forgiveness, Sammy's autobiography. He's really generous in giving that to us. Also, there's links in the podcast VIP page for Sammy's TED Talk on the power of forgiveness and some former's anonymous literature. 
It's very generous for Sammy and the team of Life After Hate to give us this, so do go over and give it a glance. And also on my website, you can find out about some other exciting things going on. My book, Inside Melania, What I Learned About Melania Trump by Impersonating Her, is going to come out uh, whenever presses open again. And the Melania Trump Roadshow will hopefully be on tour in August. Listen, we have to learn how to have public dialogue again. The world's on fire and we've got to talk about it. And there's no better way to understand the importance of this by reading the headlines. So Melania, give us the top headlines in the I Don't Care to You segment. Here's all the things that I don't care to you about. McDonald wants to reopen the economy faster than his safes. The U.S. now has the highest number of corona deaths. Number one. In the last four weeks, 22 million people have filed for unemployment benefits. But I don't care, do you? Thank you to everyone who has made this podcast possible. Thank you to Sophia Reyes-Jones for editing, to Devin Edwards for creating the intro, Christopher Catalano for doing the voiceover, Manny McLennan for making the podcast art, and a shout out to Alan Waters, Danny Holtz, and Craig Franson who helped me to conceptualize this podcast. And of course, thank you to Sammy Rangel for being such a wonderful guest. See you in two weeks. Thank you.